0: Good afternoon. It's Monday the 28th of November 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border and uh, Mark Anderson reporting from the United States. And a special guest. And indeed, we have a special guest. Right, OK, let's get straight on then with the online safety bill.
1: Uh, and, uh, well, what's going on with that? Uh, the, uh, the, it's coming back to Parliament in the next couple of weeks. Uh, and in an effort to try to, to convince anybody that it's not about uh, shutting down free speech, uh, here's uh, Michelle Donilon. Uh, This morning I'm determined that the abhorrent trolls encouraging the young and vulnerable to self-harm are to be brought to justice because they've brought in a new amendment to cover this. Uh, So I'm strengthening our online safety laws to make sure these vile acts are stamped out and the perpetrators face jail time. Uh, Social media firms can no longer remain silent bystanders. Either and they'll face fines for allowing this abusive and destructive behaviour uh, to continue on their platforms under our laws. Now, of course, this is stuff that uh, the UK government had originally decided would not be included in the online safety bill, but because of the furore over uh, the attack on freedom, freedom of speech, they're now trying to um, cover their backs, as it were, uh, and uh, divert attention away from the freedom of speech issues. Um, so the question is. Is the issue of legal but harmful content, is it being scrapped, is it being scrapped or not? Uh, And uh, the answer to that, of course, is, well, let's wait and see. It's not exactly clear what's gonna happen to this particular part of the legislation. Uh, This is a pretty critical time. And I think people should be uh, very much uh, talking about this with their representatives and so on uh, as necessary. But David, uh, where does that take us with respect to um, whether Twitter, um, well, w- with, t- with respect to Twitter?
2: Well, good news, I think. Uh, it looks as though uh, my Twitter account, AlvinRover, banned for talking truthfully and tweeting out accurate government statistics on vaccine injuries, uh, and Patrick Henningsen's uh, tw- at 21st Wire Twitter account, banned for broadly similar reasons, may be back because Elon Musk. He had a a Twitter poll, should Twitter offer a general amnesty to the suspended accounts provided they've not broken the law or engaged in egregious spam. 72% said yes and uh, Elon said the people have spoken and the amnesty begins next week. Well that's this week now so my my account's not turned on yet but I live in hope. Um, Unlike um, Professor Susan Mitchie uh, of Spy B, who does not live in Hope. She was actually quite unhappy about it. Okay, that's it, she said. Uh, when all these blocked accounts return, I will go. She doesn't want the blocked accounts, people who can argue a case and put forward evidence. Uh, the hate tweets are bad enough as it is, For anyone wishing to follow me in future, I'm in Mastodon. Um, a much more positive experience, and many have already joined. So she wasn't very happy about that. And I thought I should say furio. So through another account, Mrs Scotland, uh, I did say to her, "Uh, before you go, Susan, uh, do you have any regrets about using fear to coerce and manipulate people into taking an untried and untested experimental medical treatment without giving informed, express, voluntary and individual consent? And in response to that, uh, she blocked me. So she's not very keen on um, debating the issues, it would seem, Um, Maybe she defines uh, arguing this as online hate. Does hate actually mean saying things that she doesn't agree with or she can't face or she can't refute or argue against? Perhaps it does. Now, uh, on the subject of Susan Mitchie and the general uh, tendency towards uh, government-led behavioural change, uh, I've come across a House of Lords report uh, it's called In Our Hands. That alone's a bit creepy. Behaviour change for climate and environmental goals. And to discuss this, I'm very delighted to, uh, to welcome Dr. Bruce Scott, who's a psychologist and has written for the column and is campaigning on the inappropriate and harmful use of psychology and looking for a more ethical approach to uh, be introduced by his profession. Uh, Bruce, Welcome.
3: Well, well, hello, David. It's good to be here.
2: So, um, uh, behaviour change uh, for climate and environmental goals. What did you think of this document?
3: Well, uh, I, I was actually horrified uh, that this document uh, is chilling in, 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 in its entirety. The, the, the slick language, so to speak, that they use, uh, the, the way they, the, the condescension. Uh, and infantilisation of the population uh, is uh, is extremely alarming. Just just a, a brief a little fact about the document. I've typed in the word consent to the PDF. It comes up two times, directing you to another document. Uh, and COVID 19, uh, in the context of lessons, we have to learn lessons from COVID as a date so great experiment. Uh, we, we can use this for the climate. And uh, it, so it's it utterly horrifying.
2: Yeah, they, they, were, they were absolutely clear on this uh, The COVID-19 is, is a lesson we're going to use and we're going to run again. And I, I particularly like quoted Sir Patrick Vallance uh, in the document, quote, we saw over the pandemic that we had legions of armchair epidemiologists who got quite interested in seeing what was going on. The same is true if data is made available with completely independent, objective, and robust information, it will help people to understand how we are doing, and it can link to the clarity of messaging around what individuals can do. Now that is either um, Merriam-Webster word of the Year, apparently, gaslighting, um, or he is the most naive and uninformed man in the world. I wonder which it is.
3: Uh, I, I, I think it's utter arrogance because there's an, another quote in that document where he quotes how because uh, 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 he, he suddenly become an envir- environmental specialist all of a sudden. Uh, we, we weren't allowed to become epidemiologists or scientists during the COVID thing. He's suddenly allowed to become a specialist on the environment. And uh, one of the quotes he, he said was that this is we need to get net, the net zero something along those lines. And that it's unarguable i mean in other words we will not be allowed to argue and with the reference to the online harms bill and censorship uh you know this is a very real threat i think
2: yes and um i was also interested that there was a there's actually a minority report at the end um put forward by lord lilly peter lilly um, and he lost the vote on that he was the only one to vote for the minority position and the minority position well, was interesting when, when politicians actually stand alone. Because it's, it's, a, it's a safety in crowds kind of sport. Um, and his, his minority position was very tightly argued. And one of the core points was that um, even under the, the Climate Change Committee estimates, the official stats, um, lifestyle changes are only going to account for perhaps 10% or perhaps much less. Of, of the changes in greenhouse gases. So all of this document, which emphasises all the way through the essential nature of behavioural control, is only going to con- um, provide a very small minority, or maybe 10% of the CO2 reduction. And remember how small CO2 is as a percentage of the atmosphere and how small our contribution and how small humanity's contribution is. So we're talking a, a, an infinitesimal Fraction, a, a, an irrelevant fraction. So, it's he's demonstrating that the science is not backing up this as being necessary. But that got he got voted down eleven to one on that. Uh, everyone else seemed to be all all on board with the behavioural control.
3: Yeah, yeah, Well, it's, a, it's there's a, there's a table in that doc in, in the document as well, and it and the the top things they're targeting, they want to target if they get their way, is uh, uh, people people driving. People flying, uh, diet, uh, and building and construction homes—they're—they're they're like in the top sort of uh, five or six things. Uh, yet, if if it only contributes to ten percent, so to speak, why are they why are they going after ordinary people in ordinary ways of living? Uh, uh, you know, but of course, they're throughout the document—it's. It, it's uh, scattered with references to changing our habits, nudging, nudging uh, us into uh, different social norms, uh, and of course, take, taking lessons from the pandemic. It will involve the usual shaming, shaming people to uh, to adopt things, and and it's of course there's all, there's other spectres outside this document because uh, it's very linked to public health this idea and uh, you know there's in things that's been happening in canada for example the idea that if you're an anti-vaxxer you could be psychiatrically uh, diminished in some way and you need to be treated against your will uh no doubt no doubt if it comes to areas of public health being a danger to the self others and the, the environment uh they they will be uh because there's, there's lots of references in this document to regulations and to uh, legislation to uh, enforce it. Truly really chilling. Yeah.
2: So I've, come to, I've found quite a few. This is one of many documents. There are a few others to run past you. Here we've got the Climate Change Committee, uh, Behaviour Change, Public Engagement and Net Zero. And this is based on work by Imperial College London. So what could go wrong? The very people who gave us the COVID pandemic. Um, and they've got some key findings listed there. The first one is, if the public are to become engaged with the climate challenge and contribute to achieving net zero emissions, then the wider policy context will also need to be more supportive. New, compelling narratives will be needed to inspire and mobilise uh, mainstream participation in solutions, adoption of technologies, and change in behaviours. That sounds like
3: propaganda to me. Uh, yeah. Yes, it, 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 it's... Uh... It's what it's, it's new speak for, for 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 the further agenda. I mean, the, the link there's a linked document in in that there the the, the the one we're discussing. There's a linked one about consent, and in uh, in it, it's by the climate change committee another one, and uh, there's a table in it in, in in this, and I'll just read out the uh, the little what it says. It's about, it's about public awareness and consumer choices, and I thought this was astounding. It said, public understanding, consent for the transition process and what it will entail for their homes and businesses is a prerequisite for the bu- building's transition. If people are not aware of the changes they need to make and options for making these changes and the required pace of change, the, build, the, the, the transition will continue to stall." And of course, <laughs> but, so they'll, 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 they're wanting to implement ways uh, to we'll uh, to have no choice you know, there's a reference by one of the one of the committee in there to essentially uh, make make things so much more expensive for the things that they don't want us to have, like food, like driving, etc. Uh, so very very worrying.
2: Yeah, and of course. So, so going going back, sorry, just going back to the climate change committee. The, the other things they make the mention here is um, the governments is going to take a pragmatic approach and learn by doing. They don't know what they're going to do, they don't know if it'll work, but they're going to do it anyway, and then find out, and then it's obviously all about the data. I had a quick look at who is the Climate Change Committee, amongst others, there's some engineers and things on there, and some some climate specialists, unfortunately, from East Anglia University, Uh, but also it's led by John Selwyn Gummer, and we have uh, Professor Nick Chater, Um, uh, who is a behavioural scientist at Warwick Business School. So he's one of the
3: leading lights. Do you know anything about him? I don't know, but I did did look at some of the members of the committee. I just did a quick scan because you can check out their interests and some of their interests, conflicts of interests. uh, Lady Tin Brown, uh, she's involved in biosecurity and nuclear threats. Uh, There was Lady uh, Chalker, She's involved with some company to do with sustainability. Unsurprisingly, I noticed what well, I can't remember who it was, but someone's got got mining interests. Don't think that's very good for the environment. Uh, Lord Colgrain has building projects as an interest. Uh, Lord Lucas is involved in the surveillance industry, <laughs> uh, and uh, someone else, North uh, North Northover, I think it is. Lady or, or Lord Northover, uh, they have a company called Med Med Access, which is about healthcare products. I mean, th- the fingers and the pies. Uh, uh, I mean, they're not independent. It, uh, I thought I thought this, this is like a House of Lords document. I thought the House of Lords were meant to keep in line. It, I don't hold much well, faith.
2: Um, so I, I went looking for a wee bit more, and we got this: uh, the Human BC project. Um, sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, of course, and University College London. And it's developing an AI system to continually scan, organise, and interpret human behaviour change literature. So the AI is going to interpret the literature. That doesn't fill me with a great deal of joy. But it did take me to uh, University College London. And, of course, that is the Centre for Behavioural Change. And here we see the the woman herself, Professor Susan Mitchie, who doesn't like me on Twitter, but I'm sure... I'm sure she's a lovely lady if you meet her in person. She's obviously a communist, but uh, we don't talk about that because she doesn't talk about that because it's nothing to do with her job. Her entire belief system and worldview doesn't influence her scientific pronouncements in any way, shape or form, which is quite remarkable. Um, And a few others from that organisation. We've got Professor Angel uh, Chater. I don't know if she's related to the other Chater we just saw. Uh, More on her in extra time and uh, Dr. Lou Atkins. Now, this is quite interesting. So she's a researcher, trainer, uh, consultant in behavioural change, intervention, design and evaluation. Dr. Atkins coordinates the course and advanced modules of the training um, and leads the CBC's Australasian hub. And she's also co-author of the book Behavioural Change Wheel, A Guide to Designing Interventions. And I thought it was very interesting that Australasia the area where we have Jacinda and with a single source of truth, uh, and the most uh, the most egregious um, violence and, and infringements on our rights um, during the lockdown almost anywhere in the world was in Australia. And here we see uh, the Centre for Behavioural Change, University College London, Susan Mitchie and our, our colleague Lou Atkins have a link straight down to uh, the Australasian Hub. Um, See, Lou Atkins is uh, an honorary academic at the University of Auckland. And, uh, Brian, you might like this. Uh, They're also researching end-of-life care and behavioural change. That one, I must admit, I find a bit threatening.
0: Uh, Well, I think you should, because it's clear that this sort of applied behavioural psychology is running rampant inside the NHS as a result of their transformation and common purpose agenda. So... Uh, we need to do a lot more work on this. And David, so finally, I, I the behavioural, behavioural change wheel.
2: Yes, a behavioural change wheel. This is the the book and and tool written by uh, Susan Mitchie and Lou Atkins and Robert Robert West working together. And I did have a little look into the literature very briefly on uh, end of life care and behavioural change. Uh, much of it Belgium. Uh, obviously, Belgium has been uh, have has twenty years experience of euthanasia. And we're seeing very many concerning stories coming out of there well also they seem to be very interested in behavioral control and end of life here more on that perhaps uh, from david evans on another program
1: okay thank you for that david now let's move on to the issue of life sciences and uh well the vaccine task force uh, now the government uh is going to as announced today they're going to use the vaccine task force model to tackle health challenges Uh, so if anybody's forgotten the vaccine task force was set up in April 2020 Uh, by Boris Johnson along with uh, Patrick Vallance and uh, Chris Whitty and this was in order to facilitate the path towards the introduction of a COVID-19 vaccine Uh, and it was all coordinated research efforts of government with industry academics and funding agencies to make sure that they could expedite vaccine development and deployment. Uh, That was originally falling under the remit of the Department uh, of the Department for Business Uh, But then in, uh, I think, March 2021, it moved to the Department of Health. uh, And the person put in charge of that was uh, this lady, Kate Bingham, um, who, uh, as you can see there, 30 years with various uh, investment organisations. And that's really what it was all about, big business. Now, they published their Life Sciences Vision. The government published their Life Sciences Vision last year in July. um, And uh, then today they have published this, uh, Life Sciences, what's next for this top uh uk sector and it's back to the uk board of trade Uh, so that's good stuff so let's see how do we grow uk life sciences industry they've got four recommendations build more facilities to encourage life sciences startups uh, to scale up in the uk drive more homegrown talent and drive more global experts into the UK, immigration, uh, promote regional investment opportunities for the UK's life sciences sector. Uh, and so Kemi Badnock is in Wales today to do exactly that. We'll talk about that in a second. And leverage overseas networks to boost demand. That's what the MHRA seems to be doing uh, largely at the moment. Um, so there we go. The government, uh, Kemi Badnock is in Wales today uh, to, to deal with this.
0: OK, th- thank you for that, Mike. Um, Mark Anderson, we bring you bring you in here. Um, I've advanced your segment. So you have been looking at a, um, a video of protests in China. Uh, we haven't got the, the video clip itself, but I got a screenshot that was taken from that clip. Um, so you've been paying attention to uh, what's been happening here, and also you've got some comment uh, as a result of the uh, trial um, uh, that took place in Hong Kong of Cardinal Zen. So what, what's been happening, Mark?
4: Well, in my continued coverage of the Red Pill Conference in Utah, which is ongoing because I have a three-month subscription, uh, this came out in William F. Jasper's speech about Cardinal Zen, and he's been arrested and uh, fined. He's since been released, and I'll get more into the context uh, of that in a minute. But in so doing, it came across this video, and the commentators here uh, correctly noted that this appears to be the largest protest, the most significant one since Tiananmen Square, where the Chinese people, the citizens, are protesting against the central government itself, and it's mainly over the ongoing lockdowns and the COVIDocracy. So it's just significant in and of itself that the Chinese people are, are turning their uh, wrath toward uh, Xi Jinping, I hope I'm saying his name right, the Chinese premier, and uh, they're not as docile as maybe we've been led to believe there. Uh, so that's David, very encouraging to see that.
1: David, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Well, yes, I mean, I've been following this story as well. I, and, and, and like Mark, I've been watching some video and, and I'm relying on other people translating what's been said. Uh, but one of the translations was a, a, a member of the crowd in facing the police in, in a in a fairly violent interaction with the police is shouting at the police, "Give me liberty or give me death," which is which is a, a a novel thing for a Chinese demonstration. So we've got a wee bit more information on this. I thought I thought Mark would like that one, being American. Um, BBC News reporting that the. the in China, there's a record number of uh, COVID cases. So they've, they've done all the lockdown, but it's not working. They've now got uh, a record number of, of, uh, of cases. Yeah, but hold on a second, um,
1: David, hold on a second. We've got a, a, a country of one and a half billion people and this record number of COVID cases is something around 40,000. So, you know, the BBC is slightly misrepresenting the situation by, you know, I'm just looking at what, at the text that you've put on screen there and they're not actually talking the, the statistics. They're not talking the statistics, but they are. But
2: neither neither is the Chinese government talking the statistics. And um, they've got here a, a, a Cambridge um, University uh, academic, uh, William Horst, is saying lockdowns prevent COVID outbreaks from spreading. He says, um, but they also exert incredibly strict social control. And and it's the incredibly strict social control and the and the reaction of the people to it that does seem to be. Uh, as far as we can tell with information coming out, which is limited, does seem to be real. So we got actually quite a good uh, piece from Sky News, which I'll, I'll try and cover very quickly. Uh, the report that patience is running out in China over the COVID lockdowns, and it poses a major challenge to the ruling Communist Party. This is a very good report, and I'll encourage people to look it out, by uh, Helen Ann Smith. Um, so uh, she she says that the, the spark for the Shanghai protests was a fire... Uh, in a city of Rumkwe uh, in the uh, Zingzang province in the far west of the, the country. Uh, ten people, including children, died. Uh, it was alleged that a coronavirus lockdown prevented them from leaving the building and prevented firefighters from uh, speedy access. Um, and uh, the protests erupted on uh, Friday night. And she says, in addition to Shanghai, there have been protests overnight at the university in Nanjing, Wuhan, And in Beijing, and in recent uh, days and weeks, people have taken to the streets and clashed with police um, uh, basically all over the country. There's a sense that patience is running out. Uh, Many Chinese have watched the opening World Cup matches on television and wondering why the rest of the world is getting on with life and gathering unmasked in large stadiums while they're at risk of being locked in their homes at short notice or having their businesses shut down and unable to trade. Uh, this is very interesting, and we might come to this next time, the effect of TV showing what's happening in other parts of the world on authoritarian regimes. Um, it, it, she says people's lives are still dominated, but need to, con- to constantly be tested, uh, and they're unable to enter public places without it. Um, and uh, any time they could get stuck inside, um, if they're linked to a positive case. This sounds vaguely familiar, gentlemen. Um, and uh, she says there's a sense that the government's aware of the anger and the cost to the people. However, make no mistake, the sheer number of protests breaking out hasn't been seen in years, maybe even decades, and it poses a major challenge to the Communist Party. It's unclear how they'll respond. Uh, she concludes its control of uh, the, the Communist Party's control of state and society is also so deep and ingrained that any talk of this is somehow toppling its rule is almost certainly naive. But what is happening in China right now is nonetheless extraordinary. Levels of public anger and dissent that haven't been seen in many years. The current trajectory feels increasingly untenable. So it's an excellent report from Sky News, but I would also point out that, that Leo Kers, a comedian on Twitter, responded to Sky News and said uh, Sky News was saying, was talking about the remarkable bravery of the anti lockdown protesters in China. And Leo Kers pointed out, wait a minute, when we protested against lockdown, we were decried as selfish, granny-killing idiots. Why is the exact same thing considered brave in China? Which I think is a very good question.
0: I think there's there's a lot of uh, questions still to be raised on this one, uh, David, particularly as there's still an undertone that we can expect more lockdowns in the future, but that's tied in, I think, with some of the applied behavioural psychology. Um, so Mark, take us on to the subject of Cardinal Zen.
4: Yeah, at that speech, and you can see him in the upper right-hand corner there by William F. Jasper, the new American writer, uh, mid-November at the r- most recent Red Pill Expo in, in Salt Lake City, Utah. One of the things among several that Bill Jasper brought up, and I think there's other, other things that are on, the, on tap today that he that he spoke about for today's column, but Cardinal Joseph Zen is shown there. And Jasper brought him up in the context that Pope Francis has completely embraced climate change. He's all in with the World Economic Forum and with many of the leading lights, the global double domes at the Economic Forum. So what Jasper was saying is, um, uh, Pope Francis has time to meet with Bono. He has time to meet with Jeffrey Sachs, a CFR boy who supports abortion. Um, Pope Francis has time to meet with Bill Gates and the likes of uh, other globalists. but he's been largely silent on the plight of Cardinal uh, Joseph Zen, the former Bishop of Hong Kong, who was, as it notes here, he was convicted over his support of a fund to help arrested Hong Kong protesters. Now, it did result in only a fine, and he's not in jail, but it's the principle of the the thing, according to Mr. Jasper, of why the Pope is all in with the globalists and ignores this brave... um, Cardinal in Hong Kong, and uh, it says here in an Associated Press report, a 90-year-old, he's 90 years old, Roman Catholic cardinal, and five others in Hong Kong were fined after being found guilty Friday. That's this past Friday of failing to register a now uh, failing to register a now defunct fund that aimed to help people arrested in the widespread Hong Kong protest three years ago. Cardinal Zen, a retired bishop and a vocal democracy advocate of the city, arrived at court in a black outfit and used a walking stick. He was first arrested in May on suspicion of colluding with foreign forces under a Beijing-imposed national security law. His arrest sent shockwaves through the Catholic community. And then the Associated Press said, although the Vatican only stated it was monitoring the development of the situation closely, the Vatican claims to be monitoring this. And what's interesting here is while Cardinal Zen and the other activists at the trial have not yet been charged with national security-related charges, they were charged with failing to properly register the 612 Humanitarian Relief Fund, as it's called, which helped pay medical and legal fees for arrested Hong Kong protesters beginning in 2019. That fund ceased operations in October of 2021. But what that's indicating here is that Cardinal Zen may not be out of the woods yet. He still could get charged under um, China's national security law, which could bring heavier charges to this 90-year-old Cardinal. But, But again, Bill Jasper really took the Pope to task. And Mr. Jasper is Catholic himself for siding with the globalists and ignoring people like Cardinal Zen. So that was among the powerful things that Mr. Jasper spoke about at the Red Pill.
0: Uh, Mark I'd just en- uh, add to that as an ending that of course in UK Justin Welby uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury head of the Church of England spends all well, spends all of his time is widely known to be uh, hobnobbing with the banking elite and the globalists and the climate change agenda so there seems to be little difference between the Pope and the head of the Church of England. I'll just throw that one in.
1: Uh, David uh, you've got a A couple of clips here uh, with respect to Judge uh, Andrew Napolitano.
2: Yeah, so the first one's uh, not only for Mark, coming from America, it's also for Brian. Uh, Some years ago, Brian, I came up with the phrase, we don't have a government, we've got an occupying power uh, to try and educate people how they should respond to the threats posed by the state. And you simplified that to it's a government of occupation. Well, this first clip, is Judge, Judge Andrew Napolitano, um, a constitutionalist um, libertarian thinker and uh, very much someone who stands on the American Constitution, discovering and learning and speaking about exactly the same problem, but from an American perspective.
5: Jefferson wanted government to be chained down to the Constitution, and government has broken those chains. Government is now the master rather than the servant. And the sooner we recognize this, the better off we'll be. The sooner we realize the government steals our property, steals our liberty, restrains our freedom, insinuates itself in our economic activities, all for its own benefit. The sooner we recognize that, the better off we'll be. Government fights wars so that it can grow and it can enrich its benefactors. And it doesn't care what innocents are slaughtered. Just look at what's going on in Ukraine. It's being done to help the American military industrial complex. Yeah, thanks, interesting.
2: So just before we go into the second one, that's from Trends in the News, Gerald Salenti's program. Uh, Mark, do you have anything you'd like to add at this point?
4: Well. What he's saying is essentially true, but the the uh, most prevalent thing that's going on with the governments of the U.K., with the United States, and across Europe, is it's not so much the government in and of itself that's doing these things. The government itself, in the U.S., like these other governments, are captive to these private forces, the the banking cartel in particular, which goes back to the times of antiqu- in antiquity. Excuse me, in terms of the formation of what became modern banking, and then that. That banking cartel created the, what I call the mass media cartel. So governments do abuse things. Government is often too big. Sometimes it overregulates uh, when it should keep its hands off. Sometimes it regulates the wrong things and is laissez-faire in areas where it should regulate. But the overriding thing, although Judge Napolitano is essentially right, is that governments are under private control and themselves are captive and then they become the kneecappers for these private forces against us. That's the one little element that Judge Napolitano left out in an otherwise pretty sound commentary.
2: Well, just to explore a further, we've got one more clip from Judge Napolitano and talking about the nature of America and the nature of the government and the the state agencies and how much influence they've had. He was talking about the JFK assassination, the anniversary of which was just passed, I think, and... Um, Without much comment in the the mainstream media, Um,
5: and he had this to say: Trump told me um, he would release the JFK, all the JFK records, before he left office. We had a conversation right around the time he pardoned Roger Stone. So now it's about Christmas time of his last year in office where well, he admitted to his friends that he lost, but he was still staying, saying publicly that the election was stolen. And I said, aren't you going to release those records? You only have a month to go. And he said to me, Judge, if you saw what I saw, you would know why I can't release them. I was, what are you talking about? He said, I, uh-huh. I can't tell you on the phone. The next time I see you in person, I'll tell you. I haven't seen him in person since then. Well, what the hell could he have seen?
0: Mark, what could he have seen? Maybe he saw the truth. Um, you
4: know, that's an interesting
0: one. There was another
4: conference that just concluded here in Texas in the Dallas area. There's there's conferences there every year. And in the 20 teens, 2010, 2011, up through about 2013, I was at a lot of those conferences. Uh, different ones, the Lancer Group, uh, the Conference on Political Assassinations or Coalition on Political Assassinations, Colpa the leader of that, John Judge, since passed away. And I listened to a lot of different views and theories on Kennedy. And some people would say that the documents are kind of a red herring. They they get everybody excited, there's gonna be this release. And in the past, there's been more incremental release of documents and they turned out to be rather anticlimactic. A little juicy tidbit here, a little juicy tidbit there, but nothing really earth shattering. And so some have said, speculated, granted, that this taunting of there's going to be this release of documents and it's going to blow things wide open is sometimes used by the powers that be to keep the researchers kind of off balance. And so it's a tough call. I I certainly would like to see whatever documents uh, Trump was referring to when he had this apparent conversation with Judge Napolitano. Um, I'm not saying all the documents are insignificant, and I'd like to see them as much as the next guy, but I'm just saying that in the past, it's been rather anticlimactic and disappointing and almost used as a tool of manipulation. Um, I had a friend, I'll just mention it now, Brian David Anderson that I did some research with, and I just want to use this episode to honor his passing. He died November 1st in California as he's an alternative health practitioner. And uh, uh, he died ironically of a health issue. And uh, he and I did some research on the Kennedy thing uh, I can go more in depth another time. I just want to mention his passing and kind of dedicate my comments to him. Uh, he, he was a pretty insightful guy, but he said that, too, that he thought the documents, while there could be good tidbits here and there, were largely um, disappointing. So, um, nevertheless, we'll see what happens. Next year, 2023, is the 60th anniversary. Hopefully, something more substantive will come out.
1: OK, thank.
2: Okay, we've got more on that in extra time. Thanks so much, Mark.
1: OK, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there, or you can pick something up at the shop. But please do share the material you find on the various platforms. Uh, and David, just a very brief uh, advert for uh, uh, the NHS nurses fight for freedom of belief.
2: Yes, this is Amy Gallagher, who's suing the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust. Uh, who uh, put her on disciplinary uh, procedures because uh, she pushed back against the woke agenda, the training in whiteness, uh, the attack on uh, Christian belief and on Western values in general. She asked some questions and they didn't like being questioned one little bit.
0: Okay, thank you for that, David. Uh, Well, we had some communication um, from... uh, some french individuals a few days ago who said to us that uh, there are a lot of people in the french public who are now uh, keen to start some action to uh, get the truth out about covid um, vaccinations and uh, particularly the damage people have suffered so we have a poster here for an event which is coming up on the 10th of december we're expecting more information and we'll give you more details on that but if you're a french speaker and you're aware of this um, you can also help to keep us informed and, of course, give the group support. So, um, Mark, we just come back to you. Initially, you've got some comment on Social Security. This is an article that you've written yourself, um, but I know you're going to follow up with uh, a little bit about those secret societies. I'll just say very gently, a little bit of clock watching because uh, uh, the time's going quite quickly for today, today's news. But start us off with what you are seeing with Social Security on the block?
4: Well, the red tide that became the red trickle of the 2022 midterms um, brought about a small edge in the House of Representatives, as I note here, 219 to 212 for the Republicans. and The Senate's more or less up for grabs as Herschel Walker is facing a December 6th runoff with the the incumbent senator there, uh, Raphael Warnock, in the state of Georgia. U.S. Senators, of course, at the U.S. level. And we'll see. That could have some effect on this. But 2025 will be the 90th year of the Social Security Act, which was passed in 1935 in the wake of the Great Depression. And of course, the idea is that when people are uh, less able to work, either due to disability and or age, they can't starve to death. So there would be a stipend and that would be paid to them. Now, the, the big... The big kids on the block, such as the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, named after a former chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations, who since passed away, for a long time, the Peterson Foundation has been uh, agitating that, oh, Social Security cannot be sustained, and it's one of the largest budget items. Yes, it is, but so is interest to the banking cartel, but they don't want to talk about that, but Social Security is one of these large uh, budget items It can't be sustained, What are we gonna do? Uh, These entitlements that these seniors want, it's just outrageous. But as this article points out, uh, Social Security, like Medicare, have been paid by wage and salary set-asides, by withholdings. All they are, and E. Michael Jones has pointed this out until he's blue in the face, they are deferred wages. This is not a dole. This is not welfare, in the strict sense. This is deferred wages, people paid into the system, and, of course, they're entitled to it because they worked for it. And so, nevertheless, the Republicans come in with this hyper-laissez-faire kind of view on this, certainly not a populist one like American free press is known for, and they're, they're starting to talk this way. It mentions in here that um, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, according to Barron's, uh, brings to a round dozen the number of sitting GOP senators who have said quite openly that they want to put Social Security on the chopping block one way or another. Then you've got Republican Senators Rick Scott of Florida, who's a former governor there, and the infamous Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, and the unscrupulous longtime corporate raider Senator Mitt Romney of Utah. They have also voiced support in varying degrees for tweaking, or as they they euphemistically say, saving Social Security. So the irony here is while a lot of people are hopeful that the Republican tide, even though it was smaller than expected, will bring a number of improvements, the uh, Social Security being uh, arguably a little bit more threatened under Republican tr- control of the House it is kind of a downside to the GOP gaining control in many people's views. Because again, it's not really welfare. And uh, another factor in this is that Kirsten Cinema who happens to be a Democrat in the U.S. Senate, um, even though she's a Democrat, she popped up at the 2022 Bilderberg meeting that happened in D.C. this past summer. And she's been um, she's been vocal, according to Barron's, in giving tax breaks, um, supporting tax breaks, that the U.S. gives to private equity honchos, hedge fund tycoons, and venture capitalists. So Kirsten Cinema seems to be on the Democratic side. Someone who might side with the Republicans to tweak away or or tr- uh, trim away, or possibly seriously cut Social Security. And as I mentioned at the end of this article, and this is an important point. Um, the the real solution to this um, would appear to be if the U.S. could get out from under the Federal Reserve system and issue United States currency. Ironically, as JFK tried to do in the early 60s, and some people say his demise was based on that decision to replace Federal Reserve notes with United States notes that don't bear interest. Therefore, there'd be you know, far less interest, if any, to pay because there'd be really no national debt ultimately. So if the U.S. could get control of its monetary system, it could create a alternative to Social Security, or it could make Social Security totally solvent. In which case, there'd never be any threat to the system at all ever again, even though the number of workers paying in versus the recipients keeps going down. And that's, of course, not a good thing. Um, Fewer and fewer workers to pay for more and more recipients. But that's only a problem under the Federal Reserve System. It probably would not be under a United States currency system that Kennedy supported. So people can uh, contact me uh, through UK Column if they want to read more on that article. And uh, it's, it's interesting, though, uh, uh, Social Security is certainly at a crossroads. And I'm trying to kind of hit it hard here before the uh, 90th anniversary comes up in 2025. So there you go on that one.
0: OK, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, of course, you brought the subject quite rightly back into the subject of money and particularly big money. Just very quickly um, take us through the key points from the red pill about the powerful Uh, elites who certainly seem to believe that they are in control.
4: Yeah, Bill Jasper, who I knew casually in the 1990s uh, when he made appearances speaking in Indiana, as, as I noted earlier, he spoke at the most recent Red Pill in Utah, mid November. And among the things he brought up besides Cardinal Zen, which we talked about earlier, and the Pope's hypocrisy on helping the globalists and not Zen, he brought up this very interesting item by the British futuristic writer both nonfiction and science fiction writer, H.G. Wells, Herbert George Wells. Uh, uh, Herbert George Wells, and unbeknownst to me, I'm fairly well-informed on this guy, he wrote a book called The Open Conspiracy, Blueprints for a World Revolution. And Mr. Jasper interestingly noted, everything the World Economic Forum has been pushing, quote, was already foretold in 1928 in this book, The Open Conspiracy, end quote. And I trust Bill, Bill does his homework, that's for sure. And he went on to quote Klaus Schwab, the future is not just happening, quote, unquote. And uh, what Bill Jasper went on to say is, this is their open conspiracy, the open conspiracy now. And here we're seeing it on the screen. The future is not just happening, the future is built by us, by a powerful community, as you here in this room, as Schwab told the forum, In Davos in 2021. Thanks for showing that. What Bill Jasper added, keeping an eye on time. This is their open conspiracy, the the modern one, reflecting what HGL spoke about. This is what they admit. They believe they've proceeded to such a level that they can reveal quite a bit of their plans at this time. So that was an interesting twist in Mr. Jasper's presentation to the Red Pill Expo. Now. What we're seeing here now, his topic, as noted, secret societies are more powerful than ever. This is uh, Lynn Forrester D. Rothschild, who married into the family. And she spoke up, well, Bill Jasper spoke of her, her activities, excuse me, of why we need a new kind of capitalism. And that has to do with the future, or excuse me, the Coalition for Inclusive Capitalism. Now, I didn't have much time to read up on that uh, a great deal, but inclusive capitalism is just really uh, kind of a a reformed uh, socialistic globalism. And they talk about stakeholders and shareholders, but they never really talk about the citizens, the public very much. It's always stakeholders and shareholders. And um, there you're showing um, Pope Francis meeting with Jeffrey Sachs. And uh, he's a Soros agent, Mr. Sachs is. He's affiliated with the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the Council on Foreign Relations, World Economic Forum, Population Control, Abortion, and World Government. And Mr. Um, the, the, the Pope, Fra- Pope Francis, has been given him plenty of his time and attention, and not Cardinal Zen. But anyway, the Coalition for Inclusive Capitalism has a number of ideas that really are just window dressing and seek to uh, enforce the sustainable development goals of the United Nations and to address and tackle climate change. And so a lot of it is is just big talk and, and window dressing so they can kind of put uh, addressing climate change and things like that in a somewhat more appetizing context and get away from socialism and make it look like it's capitalism. But as I noted in my Social Security article that I talked, a few minute, talked about a few minutes ago, uh, monopoly capitalism and free enterprise are not the same thing. And so this inclusive capitalism is just a variation of monopoly capitalism, which is much more compatible with socialism than it is with free enterprise, and certainly it's compatible with globalism. So it's talk, a lot of doublespeak, which we've come to expect. And Mr. Jasper was illuminating that again, while showing that the ideas the World Economic Forum is embracing and promoting, apparently go back as as far as 1928 and the insights of uh, HG Wells. So that gives an interesting, rather new historical context to what the WEF has been doing.
0: Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, one thing is for certain that these powerful groups have been very active around the war in Ukraine. But let's um, Let's give our audience uh, an update. A lot happening over the last few days and certainly over the weekend. Now, of course, much of the activity on the front is simply not being recorded by the so-called mainstream media. So I've taken some help from some of the social media channels, um, which do have some very good information, but even they are suffering from a lack of information from the front itself. But suffice to say that uh, there's been fighting on all the key areas of the front in the east, and particularly in vicinity of Donetsk, and the key um, town or small city of Bakhmut, where the uh, Russians have been applying a great deal of force to the front. The Bakhmut battle, um, here's the, uh, uh, the urban area itself cir- um, circled, uh, but there's brutal fighting going on at the moment, and it's quite clear that the casualties are extremely high, Um, But no details of that really coming out from the Ukrainian or the Russian side, except the phrase hundreds of dead and wounded has been used by some of the reporting bodies. Ukraine is trying to hold on to this city because if they lose it, it will allow the Russians to move west uh, really through the defended lines. And this will be a key gained by the Russians. Uh, But as to be expected, the Ukrainians are fighting very hard for this territory and are pouring in men and the weapons they do have to try and hold hold the Russians. This is uh, illustrative of some of the pictures that did come out or have been coming out of Bakhmud. Uh, You can see the state of the troops. One of the men um, has got quite what, what appears to be quite a severe injury on his arm. Um, but the troops are fighting in horrible conditions. That's both on the Ukrainian and the Russian side. And some of the, uh, commentators are highlighting comparisons between the, uh, in the conditions between world war one around the Ypres, uh, battle, uh, with rain and mud and carnage and, uh, uh, flooded trenches. So that's what you see on the left and on the right are equivalent pictures from the war in Ukraine so this is very vile stuff and of course it would not be happening if the UK, the US, NATO and the West had not been pouring weapons into Ukraine to fight what is essentially a proxy war. I've put together some uh, short video clips which I'll talk through here but this is I'm going to take these as declared online they may be true or may not but they are indicative of the sort of battles going on so here we appear to have a a convoy that had been attacked and tanks were burning we've talked about this uh, before we're not sure whether it's white phosphorus or thermite Uh, some of the viewers have told us it's thermite Uh, from rocket systems used by the Russians. Uh, This is a short clip showing that the Ukrainians are now forced to use ordinary vehicles. They're running short of proper armoured vehicles, and this is a significant letdown. But these men trying to move a mortar very quickly somewhere close to the front uh, get attacked as we see in this explosion. And of course, these are small skirmishes that are happening right the way across the front. Convoy attacked here, you can see the huge explosion which occurs from one of these vehicles which was clearly carrying ammunition. Um, What should we be saying to our audience that in every one of these shots, young men are dying. This is a nighttime attack on a tank uh, using an anti-tank weapon. That's the uh, fuzzy blurred moving shape coming to the center of your screen. And ultimately with a direct hit we can be sure that more young men, I can't be sure they're Ukrainian, I believe they are, will have died as a result of Western weapons. So truly uh, horrific conditions on the front. And uh, this is uh, just to reinforce the fact that the uh, mud, it hasn't yet frozen, it's starting to freeze, but the muddy conditions are so bad that vehicles are getting stuck very easily. But once again, we see uh, ordinary civilian type vehicles having to be used by the fighting forces on the Ukrainian side. So what is the BBC doing? Well, of course, the BBC only wants more killing. So this is an article which caught my attention. Ukraine war, Russian atrocities bring NATO members closer. Uh, This is written by Katya Adler, uh, who is the uh, BBC Europe editor. This is the statement under the uh, image, Ukraine has turned support from NATO, NATO allies into success on the battlefield. Well, I don't think we were seeing success on the battlefield in those clips. And of course, the reality is that Ukrainian casualties, overall horrific, perhaps 100,000 men killed, uh, but the BBC's only interested in the war continuing. Uh, this is some of the comments uh, from Ms. Adler. If you if you'd ask, uh, she's quoting a U.S. official, but it's from her article. Um, she's saying, if you'd asked me, uh, if you asked me back in February or even six months ago, there's no way I'd have predicted the unity we now have in our ranks. And that is a quote she is giving from a U.S. official, um, but a U.S. official who's unidentified told her. And this sort of thing goes on through the article. So there's another quote from the article here. The strong resolve to stand with Ukraine that we see now has been helped by atrocities by Russia, targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure. A leading NATO official told me on condition of anonymity. Like many of the officials I spoke to, they would prefer to be able to speak more freely. Don't you think, Mike, that uh, if they were keen to speak out and everything was going well in NATO, they'd be very happy to give their names. Why would they be so shy? Perhaps what they're saying isn't actually the truth, but we are never going to know who the person was because the BBC keeps them secret. And um, Ms Adler goes on, to, uh, sorry, uh, repeat there, beg your pardon for that, goes on here. Moscow has tried to blackmail or manipulate nations supporting Ukraine with a we can make you suffer too message, an official from a large NATO country told me. So this is effectively a hearsay report which the UK public are to to take as uh, reality. Uh, This photograph appeared in the article itself and uh, uh, this is uh, um, underlying the fact that we've got support uh, from the NATO allies has been turned into success. And it goes on here to say, so NATO has considerably boosted defence capabilities for its eastern flank of member countries geographically close to Russia, but the alliance says it has no organised mission inside Ukraine. It's not training Ukrainian soldiers or providing Kiev with military support as an organisation. Well, that's got to be unbelievably disingenuous at best because it's quite clear that NATO is coordinating support for the Ukrainians in this war. So I'm going to put this down to more lies by the BBC. And of course, the UK column a few days ago put down the reality of Ukraine destroyed, economy destroyed, electrical system destroyed, Uh, everything destroyed Uh, but according to the BBC this war has got to continue in order to keep this uh, proxy war against Russia running and that will be until the last Ukrainian soldiers dead let's just watch a little clip of UK support Um, we're going to put it up there's not a lot of commentary in the video but I wanted our viewers to be able to at least listen to the music Uh, as the MOD in UK puts forward uh, its little video clip of the good work it's doing to help the killing continue.
5: some
2: 1.2p, so lots of bangy stuff.
0: Well, of course, not all the world is standing with Ukraine, but uh, what I picked up from that video clip was a large amount of applied psychology by the Ministry of Defence. You're not sure whether you're watching a proper report or it's some sort of movie, Um, but this is the blurring of reality that we're seeing occurring. Uh, Is it fooling people on social media? Certainly not from the eastern Uh, side of Europe. Uh, So here we've got Stoltenberg being identified as telling porky pies by saying that NATO is not involved in the war. Um, Meanwhile, the reality is rather different here. This is Politico. Europe accuses the US of profiting from the war, but uh, we're never going to see the BBC reporting about this. And more reality, artillery breaking down in Ukraine. As these weapons suffer routine problems, which comes from the large number of shells being fired, they've got to transfer them back to Poland for repair, and of course this is not effective in time and effort on the battlefield. And uh, also a big thank you to Brian Beletic from the New Atlas for giving this report on the latest US arms to Ukraine, because the reality is, as we go through this, is that this is nowhere near sufficient to keep the Ukrainian supplied. So there's more of the NASEM's uh, surface to air missiles, 150 heavy machine guns to apparently fight the Russian missile attacks. That is completely meaningless. Uh, Additional information for high mass and precision, 155 millimetre rounds, but a mere 200, a mere 10,000 mortar rounds. But this is where we can see what's happening with the vehicles, because we're no longer dealing in armoured vehicles. We're dealing in light tactical vehicles, and some of those, as we've seen on screen, appear to be civilian. Uh, Brian Maletic, uh, as ex-forces himself, pointed out that whilst 20 million rounds of small arms ammunition appears a lot, in reality it isn't and will only keep, I think it was a battalion supplied for a month. Uh, 200 generators is hardly going to counter the breakdown of the Ukrainian electricity supply and uh, spare parts for those 105mm howitzers that have already gone so uh, if you want to see the full report from him you can go to youtube and look for the new atlas Uh, but of course reality here the new york times asking how russia was able to launch its biggest aerial attack on ukraine when the west has been told for some time that the amount of ammunition has been falling
1: okay a few days ago um, the wonderful former head of nato former secretary general uh, Lord Robertson was speaking. was uh, writing for The Economist. Uh, headline is either Vladimir Putin loses or the West does. Uh, and uh, let's see what he's saying. The war in Ukraine is about more than Ukraine, in Vladimir Putin's view, It is part of his single-minded war on the West and on the kind of free societies live there. Why don't we see that reality with sufficient urgency? And basically he's calling for direct and open warfare with Russia. So uh, the war Mr. Putin wages against us is a, of a new sort, hybrid, multifaceted under the radar, insidious, but it's still a war, and it's time we woke up to the seriousness of it. Disinformation, election meddling, corruption, organized crime, extraterritorial assassination, supply chain disruption, and cyber interference is what he's alleging that Putin is responsible for. Uh, But then Putin also inserts his poison. Uh, Some of it is overt, but much of it more subtle. So if Russia is at war with us, why are we not defending our countries as if we were under attack? Why are we acting as if there's no threat to us? We've sent money and weapons to aid Ukraine in its defensive efforts, and we've sanctioned Russia. Uh, and those close to Mr. Putin. But by responding to warlike attacks with peacetime processes, we ended up damaged. We end up damaged and compromised. So that's his position. We need to stop uh, using peacetime processes, get down to the war. Uh, That's what he wants. I wonder what Rishi Sunak's position is. Uh, Well here he is, uh, and he's uh, giving a speech at Mansion House tonight. And these are the words that he's going to use. This is a speech on foreign policy matters. He's saying freedom and op- openness uh, have always been the most powerful forces for progress, but they have never been achieved by standing still. Under my leadership, we won't choose the status quo. We will do things differently. We will evolve anchored always by our enduring belief in freedom, openness, and the rule of law. Uh, yes, okay. Uh, and he goes on to say Ukrainian flags have flown almost over almost every town and city on these islands for the last nine months. No one told people to put them there. Uh, they felt moved to show solidarity with people they've never met in a country most have never visited to show their faith and fairness freedom and the rule of law so everybody's really up for the rule of law it's fantastic Uh, but he says he's going to say tonight be in no doubt uh, we will stand for with ukraine for as long as it takes we will maintain or increase our military aid next year our adversaries and competitors and by that he means russia and china because that's what he says elsewhere in this uh, plan for the long term on the face of these challenges short-termism or wishful thinking will not suffice and David I want to get your thoughts on this because the kicker's coming now it means standing up to our competitors not with grand rhetoric but with robust pragmatism could you please tell me what that means I haven't <laughs> I haven't got a clue not with grand rhetoric but with
2: robust pragmatism no a competitor if you if you've got a competitor you compete you, you try harder we try harder. Why do we? Why come to us? Why come to build cars or anything else in Britain? We will we'll try. Hi, we will try harder. We will charge you less. We will tax you less. Our workforce will do better because because we're better educated and we're more motivated. That's how you compete, Mr. Sunai. And as for George Robertson, we should defend our country as if under attack. But the reality is, we're not. That's insane. It's absolutely. It's, he's calling. He's calling for war with nuclear-armed power. Um, that it's in no way in Britain's interests. Not under any any wild imagination is this in British interest.
1: No, I. Um, I heard, sorry, sorry, David. David, this is not in the interests of the British people. There's a difference. There is a difference because we've got an occupying power. I think, as you said <laughs> earlier in the program. I,
2: yeah, it could. It, I am not saying it's not in the interest of a of a of a of a global one world government agenda, but it's not in the interest of Britain or the British people. And um George Robertson, his nickname when the S when he was Scottish Secretary and the SNP used to hate him, their nickname for him was Chicken George. I always thought it was quite funny that they made Chicken George nasal secretary. Um what George Robertson is, is calling for there is is
1: absolute insanity. Yes, indeed. Uh, Okay, let's look at see what Ben Wallace is up to then. So here's uh, the Daily Beast because he gave them an exclusive interview a few days ago. Uh, Russia risks knockout blow in war as Putin hits rock bottom uh, is his position. Uh, And he's saying uh, he is slamming successive UK and European governments for decades of neglect of their armed forces because we can't prosecute a war under the current circumstances. I have to say, Brian, this is the first time, at least that I'm aware of, that we've had an open admission. I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time, but this is what he had to say, if we just put that back on screen. Uh, I can speak for my own and some others in Europe. It looks good at the front, but under the bonnet, ammunition stocks, maintenance, availability, reliability of our equipment, and the readiness of our soldiers to go anywhere. Uh, has been hollowed out for decades. Now, this is something that the UK column has been highlighting for a very, very, very long time, but I haven't seen it uh, openly acknowledged uh, well, except under the circumstances that he's being spoofed well, by by Russian, uh, you know, uh, spoof callers. Uh, that that he's actually openly admitted this.
0: Well, of course, it's, it, the Russians have forced this to be declared because uh, there isn't the ammunition that the that. UK or NATO wants to push into Ukraine. It does not exist and it can't be manufactured. So the rot in the armed forces, yes, has been going on a very long time, but it's been going on under the uh, control of the Conservatives. And let's show uh, more of the dangers of what's been going on inside the armed forces, because we've got another article sent to us. Uh, This is from the Daily Mail about a junior RAF officer who became pregnant by a Red Arrows commander, and uh, she claims he tried to pressurise her into an abortion, telling her it's a bunch of cells, not a baby. I've labelled this breakdown of discipline continues in the UK military because this is what is actually happening. But have a look at how the twist goes in this story, because if we quote from the former lover, who of course is anonymous, uh, she says she was shocked to see Monty, that's the male officer, withdrawn from duties. I do not want to see him lose his job, but I do not think he should lead the squadron because it's a mess. It needs sorting out. The culture was toxic when I was there. And my friends still in it say it got worse after i left the tone is set from the top but of course this young lady was part of the culture she goes on there have been reports of a heavy drinking culture in the red arrows oh yes there was she says i was part of it everybody was there was a rule you couldn't be hung over at work it was as bad as being drunk but we all were so she is totally involved in the breakdown of culture women were pursued by men. Well, what a surprise and harassed if they did not play ball. I witnessed it with a female colleague. Uh, Two of the men, one pilot, one a member of ground crew were vying for her. Peacocking, we'd call it. It got quite obsessive and nasty. So there's a lot more we can comment on here. Perhaps we can do it in extra time. Uh, uh, with an eye on the clock at the moment, but we are watching utter breakdown of the British Armed Forces from the inside as a result of the policies that successive Labour and Conservative governments have introduced. We're now seeing how poisonous this this, uh, regime is, and of course ultimately people are going to die as a result of it because they are not fit for purpose.
1: And the irony is that today, the UK is hosting today and tomorrow, the preventing sexual violence and conflict uh, event. Uh, And uh, so that's taking place today and tomorrow. This is for survivors with survivors. Uh, But in the meantime, aside what's going on in the uh, RAF, of course, Brian was talking last week about what's going on in the Royal Navy. Uh, Well, here is uh, Ben Key, the head of the Royal Navy, who's justifying what's been going on there. He said it's absolutely true that for a long time, our investigation processes were too closely aligned with the chain of command, which could then on occasion be seen as presenting a conflict. Uh, This is with respect to sexual violence, well, in some cases, sexual violence against uh, female uh, members of staff of the Royal Navy. Uh, We have changed it now so that anyone who wishes to raise a formal complaint, the admissibility and the handling of that complaint is immediately taken away from the unit they're serving and is assessed at the headquarters and will then be independently investigated. I would be really worried. This is the bit that really grasps me, Brian. I would be really worried that if we were setting ourselves in a completely independent process, We would both slow it down and actually lead to less good outcomes. What's he worried about here? Is he worried about a a truly independent process would have something pretty negative to say about the culture within the uh, Royal Navy?
0: Yeah, this is, um, what is it, brand management is what he's worried about. But of course, the reality is that this rot is now so pernicious, it's so pervasive at the heart of the British military that uh, we have major problems in all sorts of other areas and of course senior British uh, military officers over the years have been fully complicit in accepting these policies because they were too scared to stand up against them. Right, Uh, so David, uh, let's move to Scotland then and just very quickly.
1: Yes, so
2: this is a charity called Favour UK, Um, the UK wide uh, charitable think tank and human rights advocacy service led by people uh, who have uh, experience of alcohol and drug uh, addiction, or, uh, or with family members who have had that addiction, um, and they are representing the communities affected by addiction and are, are campaigning an advocacy organization. and advocacy organisation. And they are led by this lady you see here, Anne-Marie Ward. A little bit about, about Anne-Marie, right? So she's, we've got some detail here. Now she's set up a lot of charity, she's done a great deal of book, charitable work, but it says in a previous life Anne-Marie had addictions to various substances, she was not a drug of choice kind of gal, she liked them all until they stopped working, um, but she has been completely clear of all um, mood and mind-altering substances for 25 years and uh, has done uh, master's degrees at uh, University of Glasgow and has led the efforts to do something about the truly horrendous drug and addiction problems in Scotland. Now, you would think that's reason enough to mention her on the column, but no. There's another reason I mention Anne-Marie Ward, because you see, Anne-Marie is an utter, utter legend. Um, She was running a three-year campaign to to do something about the addiction problem and, and the lack of treatment facilities in Glasgow. And uh, there was a local Glasgow councillor who turned up during this three years twice. Never said anything, didn't get involved. But when they were having a big event and the TV cameras were there, up he popped. We have some video uh, showing how she reacted.
1: So he was a Glasgow councillor.
2: He was a Glasgow councillor. That's uh, Graham Campbell, is his name. And uh, she threw him out. Uh, we've got a second uh, video clip uh, as she describes why she did it.
0: He's showed up at two events in the last three years. So, any, cl- and, and, you know, he's barely
3: spoken a word to us during those events. He's not offered any support outside those events. He's, as far as
0: I'm concerned, he's showed up to get his photograph taken and to sh- prove that he was there there's been no support so for him to stand up and say that <laughs> that he's you know he's supported the campaign since it started is laughable and, and, and as beyond lies and manipulation that's downright I don't know uh, I mean to, to lie like that is just a complete brass neck uh,
2: Brazen gall. Uh, if, if uh, brass neck doesn't transmit it doesn't translate into American, Mark. Uh, we've got a little bit more here. We see the Herald um, describing how SNP's Graham Campbell uh, was was thrown out uh, of that meeting. Uh, but the Sunday Post uh, reports that uh, Councillor Graham Campbell is now accused of threatening the charity. Uh, he allegedly told Anne-Marie Ward uh, that there would be consequences And his people would would withdraw support unless she apologised. Another councillor who witnessed the altercation claimed Campbell, whose partner is SNP MP Anne McLaughlin, it's already incestuous in the SNP, told Ward funding for her charity could be cut. Um, And a large part of uh, Favour's budget comes from the Cora Foundation, which provides grants to support the National Drugs Mission on behalf of the SNP-led Scottish Government. The threats which Campbell denied yesterday were allegedly made after uh, the incident you saw caught on camera so we'll see if anything happens to her funding but wasn't she magnificent
1: good stuff right let's just uh finish then with a couple of final slides i, w- I wanted to bring this on bearing in mind the the uh the, the fact that the uk government is holding this sexual violence conference uh because this is from bob moran again this cartoon uh and uh, of course it's a take on paddington uh but it's a, a bear a russian bear because you can see on this uh, hat there he's got the Russian uh, coat of
0: arms and, and blood on the paws and blood on the that's... paws
1: of course and it says please uh, put this bear up in a four-star hotel and on the uh, suitcase it says wanted on charges of sexual violence the the mainstream press today full of stories uh, in fact over the last three four weeks just absolutely for, full of stories about uh, claims that Russian, the Russian government is systematically using sexual violence in Ukraine it's simply uh, ridiculous. David.
2: That's an Albanian bear.
1: Oh, I do apologize. Okay. I thought that was a I thought that was a Russian crest on the. Uh, but okay, whatever no, you say. I'm that's
2: sorry. That's oh, all. That's, al- that's, al- that's Albanian.
0: All bears look the same oh, yeah, to us, well, David. <laughs> <it's> shocking. <laughs>
2: shocking.
1: Okay, and just very quickly,
0: David.
2: Yeah, I caught this over the weekend. I thought it was. I thought it rather summed up the position of the UK column audience. I hope. Uh, I hope many will agree with me. It's a a quote from the Amplified Bible translation, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, but I thought it covered what we're about. So it says, So then, let us not sleep in spiritual indifference, as the rest of the world does, but let us keep wide awake, alert and cautious, and let us be sober, self-controlled, calm and wise. And I hope you'll agree, gentlemen, that's what we're encouraging people.
0: I, I absolutely agree, David, but I think there's there's also other texts which would mean that we're not expected to sit idly by, but perhaps we can have a discussion on that at some point. We'll end the news there. Thank you to everybody who's joined us today. Thank you very much for people if you've come in from over in particular if you've come in from overseas and at slightly unpleasant times of the day. It's great to have you with us. And a very big thank you to everybody who's supporting the UK column. We can only do what we do with your help and financial support. So thank you very much for that. Extra in two minutes. Extra in two two minutes. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.